tell you, I could probably lose my voice singing that song. So, would you, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, grab them and turn with me to John chapter 8. That's where we're going to be spending our time together. This is a passage, um, I mean, I'll just be straight with you, it creates more than a little debate among biblical scholars, right? Depending on the translation you are using, whichever English translation that you carry in here with you, you might find a variety of notes attached to this section. My, we use the English Standard Version here for, uh, for our teaching and preaching, and so the note on, on, on mine says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, and that's, that's a note that obviously creates a certain level of, of tension for us. Uh, it's not a stretch to say that the majority of a biblical scholarship lands on this passage actually not being part of the Gospel of John. Uh, it, that's based on what's commonly called textual evidence, and I'm not going to bore you with all the details of that, but basically uh, the, the, the leading scholars, mostly the scholars in, in Greek and Hebrew, those, those types of people. So the guy who's a specialist in Greek, you've got to imagine that guy. Uh, there's not a whole lot of them out there, but the guy who, that's what he does. They, they've, they've gone through manuscripts and manuscripts over, over the course of time, and, and they've, they've determined that, that, that this one may or may not be uh, part of the Gospel of John, you know, there, there is there's something you need to know about the canon of Scripture, it, and and the, the first is that there is no singular book just called the Bible that came from the first century and with a, with like a note wrapped up on it that said from God, you know, enjoy, uh, hope hope you hope you like this, and and I'll be honest with you, I think it's God's wisdom that that's the case. I, I really do. I'm not just saying that because it's convenient for this passage, by the way. So don't. Don't accuse me of that. I, I genuinely believe it's his wisdom because can you imagine, just for a second, if there was one book from the first century that was the actual manuscripts, the actual what they call the autographs of, of the gospel writers, of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke, and John, and then you add uh, James and Paul and Peter and, and even Jude, you know, gets a letter in there. If you were to add those up and have one document that were written by their hands, do you know what humanity would do with those? You know, you, know, you can go to certain churches over in different parts of the world, and, and if you walk into them, you'll find like an old hand. And by old hand, I mean like literally an old hand. And be like, that's the hand of John the Baptist. They do it. They do it for real. Or they like worship it. And if you can somehow touch the hand, it'll heal you. And, and then if you go to certain other places, they'll be like, uh, that's the head of John the Baptist. But the problem is there's like seven different churches in the ancient world all claim to have it. And we know he was one guy, right? So somebody doesn't have the right head, okay? That we, we know that much. In fact, the majority of them are off base. And so if we, can you imagine if we actually had one book that was all just written up and said, this is from God, my word to you, man, wars would be fought over that thing. We would. I mean, it would be, it'd be, it'd be Indiana Jones trying to find that book, right? And we would battle one another because whoever would hold on to it would have some sort of power. We would, we would be the authority. And so I really think it's God's grace that that doesn't exist. And it's also His grace that the Bible is so consistent over so many authors, over so much time, and so many different places that we can still look at it and rest on the authority of it because we know that it is from God through His people to us. 
And so what I want to contend here is, and I'm not alone in this, I, 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 might, I might be in the minority, I'm not sure, uh, but I want to contend that this passage is, um, that it is actually part of the text, that it is Johanna, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one being the fact that it serves as, a, as an entry into our next passage, which is an I am saying, and John always includes an entrance into those passages. And so if you delete this out, we're missing that. The other reason is that this passage actually complicates things. Now, I, I know that sounds weird. Right? Why do you think it? Editors don't tend to make things worse. They make them easier, right? Isn't that what editing is? You take out the fluff. This passage actually creates tension because it's been used for centuries as an excuse for licentiousness, for people to do whatever they want to do because Jesus isn't going to condemn you. I think they're wrong, by the way. But I do believe that this passage is in the Gospel of John. And so we're going to stand now, if you will, with me. And we're going to tune our hearts to hear the word of the Lord. This is following the, the Feast of Booths. We're told they went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, man, this has been a weird week. <laughs> this has been a distracted week. I don't know that anybody's schedule went according to plan. As far as, as, far as our family, you know, it was, it was just survive. And Lord, you, and Lord you've led us through, through what could have been a, a much more difficult situation. And so we pray now with, with thankfulness in our hearts that you, would, that you would just burn away the distractions. That you, would, that you would help those things to evaporate right now so that we might come to you with our whole hearts, with our whole minds, that we might be able to, to hear from you as you're going to speak to us. Help us to have that expectation right now, that confident expectation, that hope, that faith, that you're going to speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would do that now, in spite of me, that you would do that. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our family, uh, we love to watch movies. 
That's just a part of what we do. The boys and I especially have loved uh, watching all of these superhero movies that have come up of, or come out over the last few years. Uh, for me as a father, I'll just tell you, it's been incredible to have these, these stories to refer to. Uh, these stories of hope and courage and redemption in the face of oppression, in the face of evil, in the face of suffering. It's, it's like what G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton said. He said, fairy tales do not tell children that, that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that the dragons can be killed. You see, that's one of the great things about the hero story. And one of the things that naturally happens with us, what happens with, with each individual boy, is when we watch a movie, we begin to sort of connect with uh, uh, particular characters. Like one of them becomes our favorite, but even more than that, we begin to like identify with them. And so depending on which day of the week you ask the four-year-old, he's a different hero, right? I mean, it just kind of depends on what kind of mood he's in. Uh, uh, other times he's, he's Black Panther, right? Sometimes he's Iron Man. One day he was Thor, and that was a bold move. I mean, it was just like, this, this kid's out there but we all kind of identify with a character and then we begin to see the story through the lens of that character. We begin to interpret the events of that day or of that movie through the eyes of that character and that, because that's how all storytelling works. There has to be a point of connection, otherwise we don't listen. In this passage, we find there are three main characters, three. We have the woman who's been caught in adultery. She's introduced to us there in verse 3. And along with the, the second character, which is really a group of people who form one character called the scribes and the Pharisees. And the last main character is obviously Jesus. And when we find Jesus, he's, he's just spent the evening out on the Mount of Olives, kind of a little camp out there on the outside of Jerusalem, over on the east side of Jerusalem, right? Some, some people are returning to their homes because it's the end of the Feast of Booths. We just walked through that in chapter 7. So some of them are going to their homes in Jerusalem. A bunch of them are going back to the towns and villages that they live in. But, but we remember that Jesus doesn't have a home, right? He doesn't have a home to go back to. It's just like what Matthew 8, 20 says, that the foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so he spent the night out on the Mount of Olives. And so here the next morning, it's very, very early. He has come to the temple, and we're told that all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Can you imagine this scene? I'm going to ask you that can you imagine question a bunch of times today. I'm going to ask you to imagine that scene as it's happening. You sort of feel the coolness of the morning air, right? I mean, it's there in Jerusalem. It's early morning. There's a coolness in the air. You know that the dust hasn't quite been stirred up on the streets yet because it's still early and and things are still damp from the, the dew of the morning. There are fewer people than normal there in the temple. Like there's actually room to move around. It's like, it's like uh, early morning in a big city. Like, or like, well, it's like Sunday morning in a big city, right? There's, it's just, you kind of got the place to yourself if you're out moving around, right? That's what it's like. It's just, it's just kind of low-key. There's not a lot of traffic, and in general, it's, it's quiet. It's peaceful. And the truth is, this really seems like an ideal setting for, for Jesus to be 
to be teaching the people. They've, you know, they've got their coffee, right? They've gotten up early. They've got their coffee. They probably have their journals out. They're ready to take like copious notes for community group that night, probably. Shameless plug there. Um, some of them have their phones out and they're taking pictures of like their little bagel, right? And their Bible and they're talking about how spiritual this morning is and they're sharing it on their social media profile so everybody will know they're super Jews at that time. That's just what, I'm sure that's what they did in that time. Can you imagine this scene? I think you can. If you've been to a Panera bread here on a Sunday or any other day of the week, that's probably what you're going to find. We need to imagine this. Like we need to put ourselves there. We need to, like, we need to see it. We need to even kind of smell the air of the room because, because John is painting that portrait for us. He wants us to see this. He wants, to, he wants us to see the beauty of this moment because that is what is about to be wrecked and it happens in an instant all the serenity of that moment look back at at, at verse three we're told that into that scene the scribes and the pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery now just to be clear that's a distraction all right they didn't just walk in the idea here is they have barged into the midst they've come it'd be like somebody busting in that back door and saying we've caught this woman in adultery and and that's a distraction that disrupts the moment. All of the beauty, all of the peace, all of the, all of the shalom of that moment has been shattered by, it's been fractured by the entrance of the scribes and the Pharisees with this woman. Those are the ones who, who bust into this scene in the temple, dragging what could have been a, depending on who you, who you follow, this could have been a naked or, or almost naked woman with them right into the middle of the temple, right into their midst, right in front of everyone. And she is fully exposed. There's nowhere for her to hide. Like I know you've had some bad days in your life. There have been some moments that you found yourself in where you were a little embarrassed. I mean, I still remember being in like third grade and getting up to do a book report in my class. And one of my friends from the back, hey, your fly's down. I still remember that. I, and I, I, like, I can see his face, and if he listens to the podcast, he knows who I'm talking about, because we've talked about it, right? Because I still, at third grade, I still remember that moment of embarrassment, and yet this woman has been brought into the midst of a crowd of strangers being charged with committing adultery. Can you imagine her day? You see, there's no doubt that she's guilty of the charges, Their declaration in verse 4 makes it clear that this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, and she doesn't refute that. In fact, we never hear her say anything until Jesus asks her a question. But it raises all sorts of questions for us, though. Some important ones, actually. The most important being that if she was caught in the act, where's the guy? According to the law that they are citing in verse 5, that in the, law of Mo, uh, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women, the requirement was that the couple be caught in the act. One expert in Jewish legal procedures, he says it this way, the actual physical movements of the couple must have been capable of no other explanation, and the witnesses, yes, plural, must have, been, must have seen exactly the same acts at exactly the same time in the presence of each other so that their depositions would be identical in every respect. You see, it's a capital offense, and so they had a high expectation of what the witnesses had seen. So where's the man? How come we only have the woman 
when this is something that obviously takes two people. At the very minimum, the scribes and the Pharisees have allowed that man to escape, right? They've allowed him to escape, allowed him to kind of disappear into the shadows and allow this now woman to take the fall for the whole thing. That's, and honestly, that's like the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that the whole thing was a setup. That, she's, that this woman was either intentionally seduced or manipulated by, by men in a position of power and authority in order to create an opportunity an opportunity to go after Jesus. And unfortunately, that, that might be the most likely scenario. The other problem for us to consider is this. If, if these leaders caught them in the act, if they were in a position to witness the act of adultery, which is, I mean, let's just say it, that's incredibly creepy, right? Um, if they were in a position to witness it, they were also in a position to stop it from happening in a position to just, I would imagine, speak up, and that probably would have changed the events of the day, and yet they have chosen not to do that. William Hendrickson says, the story leaves the impression that these religious leaders are merely using this woman as a tool, and that they are not interested in bringing her before the Sanhedrin. At this point, she's just part of their scheme to try and entrap Jesus. You see, in this case... There's no reason at all for them to even bring her before him. They know the law. They quoted the law for crying out loud, right? You see, it's not, just a, it's not a case of justice for them. It's an opportunity. They want to trap Jesus in between the proverbial rock and a hard place because the law is clear. It's there in Deuteronomy 22. You can go and read it yourself. So it's not a question of legal interpretation. This is a trap. If Jesus says that she shouldn't be put to death, if he says to let her go, he's defying Moses. He's going against the law of God, which would make him a heretic. That's one side of the dilemma he's in. You see, that's the rock on one side. The hard place is that if he tells them to execute her, if he authoritatively tells them, yes, you should stone her, now he's breaking the law of Rome. You see, Rome only allowed their courts to execute capital punishment. That's why Jesus is going to end up in front of a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate, right? And so the setup, it's, it's fairly clever. This is a scheme that they've come up with. And they've put Jesus in a position where he'll either be an enemy of the law of Moses or he'll be an enemy of the state. And all the while, while all of that is happening, let's not forget that the woman, this woman is standing there in her guilt, in her shame, and certainly, certainly in fear. You see, the, the leaders don't care about the woman. They don't care about justice being done. They have a goal in mind, and they do not care what it costs to accomplish that goal. That's why John says in verse 6, look at that. He says, this they said to test him that they might bring some charge against him. Again, their aim isn't justice. It's not righteousness. It's not faithfulness. They are there in the temple that morning to accuse Jesus. That's their goal. That's their aim. They're there to trap him. They spent the whole Feast of Booths, which, by the way, is like equivalent to their Christmas, okay? They've spent all of Christmas season trying to come up with a plot to kill this man. 
trying to figure out how to arrest him. They even sent officers to arrest Jesus. Remember that in 7? They sent him to arrest him, and they come back and say, nobody's ever talked like this man before. These are schemers, man. Rather than leading the people into lives of holiness, they're leading the people into a life of the shadows of sin. That's, that's where they're comfortable. They want to snuff out the light. And so what does Jesus do? I mean, he's there. He's in this position. He is in a, in a tough spot. How does he respond to this impossible situation? Look back at verse 5. Sorry, 6. Look at 6. We're told there that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This is the only place in, in the whole Bible where we're told that Jesus wrote anything. And I find it very interesting that he wrote it in the dirt. So unless somebody came behind him and made a cast of that dirt that he had written in, we don't know what he wrote. And nobody can venerate this object either. God is, God is concerned to protect that. What we, we, we don't know what he wrote, but we do know what happens next. These guys... Uh, These scribes and Pharisees who really thought that they had him. They thought they'd finally come up with the scheme, right? We finally got him right where we want him. We got him. We've outsmarted him. They're so anxious to get an answer. You you can see him. It says that they kept asking him there. It's like a child tugging on the parent's pant leg in the story. What? Did you hear mom? Can it? Can it? Can it? Answer, answer, because we got him, man. We got him. Just answer, and then we'll figure out how we're going to kill you. They're like sharks, man. They just smell blood in the water. And so Jesus stood up and he said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, don't miss this, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Can you imagine their faces? Can you imagine their faces? Can you imagine their disappointment? I mean, Jesus didn't avoid the issue. He didn't hide. He didn't just run away, which is probably what I would have done. I would have just gotten out of there at all costs. He, he certainly didn't give them the answer they were hoping for. After all of their scheming, after all their planning, all their accusing, with just one statement, Jesus has undone it all. James Montgomery Boyce says they were destroyed in a moment when they were confronted by the God who masters circumstances. It reminds me, it reminds me of that scene, and I try not to quote Lewis every week, but uh, it reminds me of that scene in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, it's the scene where the white witch has come to claim uh, the life of Edmund, right, who had betrayed his siblings, right? He's the wicked, the wicked brother who's, who's given him over, and she goes into the tent uh, to talk with Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the story. And when they come out, Aslan announces that she has, she has renounced her claim on the blood of Edmund. That's all he says. And then the witch shouts back in front of all of the crowd. She shouts back in that just shrill voice that you hear. How do I know your promise will be kept? And if you, if you haven't seen the, the film adaptation, it's actually different than the book, but I think it's more effective. Aslan, who is, of course, a great lion, he doesn't say anything intelligible back. He doesn't say, well, you can trust me because I'm a huge lion. He doesn't say you can trust me because I'm obviously the Christ figure in this fantasy story. He doesn't say any of that. He says nothing, but he lets out a ferocious roar. Just a ferocious roar. A roar that shakes the entire crowd. And the witch, who 
who was once standing there fully confident, just sure that she's got him right where I want him. Finally, I'm going to get this guy. Convinced she had won, she falls back into her pathetic chair and she's carried out of the camp in silence. You see, we read in verse 9, this is what it says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He, he doesn't say she's guilty. He doesn't say that, that she's free to go on living her best life now, however she chooses. He doesn't ask her questions about her past to try and get kind of like the juicy details about her. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't, he doesn't try, to, try to make her this bad example so he can prove how good he is for everyone. He doesn't do any of that. The contrast between how Jesus treats this woman and the way that the scribes and the Pharisees have treated this woman is, is like night and day. He doesn't ask her to stand there and defend herself. He doesn't make her into an example or use her as a tool to accomplish his purpose. What he shows in that moment is that he genuinely cares for her. Here at this moment, the righteous one, right? He who knew no sin, who had no guilt, says to this one who is standing there only in guilt, only in shame. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Can you imagine this mercy? Can you imagine this grace? You see, in Zechariah 3, which I know everybody did your Bible study in Zechariah 3 this morning. Um, You should, though. Zechariah is a We may go Zechariah next, honestly. It might happen. Anyway, uh, the prophet is given a vision of Joshua the high priest, and he's standing there, and and he's standing there before the, uh, the angel of the Lord. And we also see Satan standing at his right, accusing Joshua. That's the visual that we're given. The enemy is there. He's pointing out all of the guilt, all of the stains, all of the marks against this guy, Joshua. He's crying out against him, laying out all the ways that he's broken the law of God. And the way Zechariah describes this is, is that when he sees Joshua, he sees him there in what, he's, what he calls filthy garments. That's the idea. He's filthy garments. He's there in his guilt He's there in his shame, and we can visualize this, right? Again, can you imagine this scene, this courtroom scene in heaven where the angel of the Lord is sitting there, and Joshua is there in all of his guilt, all of his shame, all of the dirt of his sin, and it's so palpable that you can see it on him. Those are the filthy garments. Joshua looks a lot like the woman in our scene, right? This woman caught in adultery. And if we're, if we're able to be honest with ourselves, Joshua looks, well, he looks a lot like us. You see, in this passage from John 8, our only hope is that we identify with the woman. You see, you aren't the hero of the story, you're the one in need. I'm not, I'm not Iron Man, right? I'm not, I'm not Captain America. I'm definitely not Thor. That guy is incredibly good looking, right? I mean, I, no guy is Thor. I mean, he's this unbelievable human being, right? But I wish I was. Like when I walk out of the theater, that's immediately what we do. So who's your favorite? 
Who, which one are you? And we all pick. Except for my sons tell me I'm the bald one. <laughs> which, by the way, there's not, right? In this passage, I'm not Jesus. Yeah, that's one of the problems for the church. A lot of times we look, we look at a Bible story and we go, that's me. I'm, 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 I'm like Jesus in the story. No, you're not. I mean, I love you, but you're not. I'm the woman. I'm the woman in this passage. I'm the one in need of being saved. Because the truth is that in my sin, I'm the one who's broken. I'm the one who's guilty, and I'm the one in need. And the enemy has paraded me out into the open. I stand before the throne of God fully exposed. He's pointing out every way that I have sinned and fallen short, and God, He sees us in our filthy garments. We're exposed, and we deserve to pay the penalty for the sin that we own. You need to know that. You need to know that there's nothing hidden from the eyes of God. He sees you. He knows you. But, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that instead of condemning Joshua, the angel gives orders to those who are there to, this is what he says, remove his filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, this is what he says. He says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. We don't use the word vestments a lot. We probably should. I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. You see, that's a gospel image. It's that, It's that of Jesus taking our sin, taking our guilt upon himself, taking our filthy garments from us, bearing it on his own body and clothing us in his robe of righteousness. This is only possible. This is only possible because, because you see, at the cross, Jesus would pay for the sins of Joshua. Jesus would pay for the sins of Joshua. Jesus would pay for the sins of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus would even pay for the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus would pay for every sin that I ever have, ever am, or ever will commit. I'm not sure if ever am is grammatically correct. Don't hold me on that one. Jesus would pay for all of it. Because it's remember, it's that while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. So now we live unto him. Now the law that once accused us, now the law that once hung over us as a crushing weight, the demands of the law no longer press down on us because we've been set free. The accuser has no power. He can't say anything because our sin has been paid for. And because we have a holy advocate in Jesus. It's like when Satan stands there and says, but if you knew this about him, Jesus would say, I know and I've paid for that. I know because I felt that. I know because I bore that. I know because that's the scar here. It's the idea that when when Jesus hears the complaints of the enemy against us, 
that he just holds up his hand and says, yeah, I know. I had him. Yeah, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's, it's that our sin has been taken from us. Remember that? He, Joshua didn't take off the filthy garments. They were taken off of him. This woman didn't have anything to stand in. Our filthy garments have been removed. We didn't shed them. He took them. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then you know the next part. It says, By grace you have been saved. By his grace you have been forgiven. And so we no longer... Now we no longer have to imagine that grace. We no longer have to imagine that mercy because as his children, we've received it. We know it. We rest in it. And now we're called by Christ just as he commanded this woman. He says, go and from now on, sin no more. One of my favorite writers is a a guy named D.A. Carson. He calls this idea grace-driven effort. Grace-driven effort that because of what we've received in Christ, now we're motivated to live lives of holiness. Not because we somehow earn it. We talked about that with the kids, right? Anything I try to add to my salvation actually undoes it. It's like me taking a chisel out and destroying the box that we made and going, see, now I've made it pretty. So now it's perfect the way it was. You can't do anything to add to it. Go from now on and sin no more. Now we we live in grace-driven effort. We strive after righteousness because we're free to do so. Because we're free to do so. That's our calling as God's redeemed children. That's his calling on us as a church, not just on Sundays, man, not just on Sundays, not just in these moments. And y'all are super holy. You braved a tropical storm. I mean, y'all got extra jewels in your crown, right? I mean, this is, by the way, don't buy into any of that. That's, if my sarcasm's not coming through, that's my fault. <laughs> not just on Sunday, man, not just in these moments. Not for the 70 minutes you'll spend here. Probably 70 this day. Every moment. Every moment. That's the call. That's the commission. So let's go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess to you in front, of, in front of these people, in front of your people, that I came to you in filthy garments. Actually, the truth is, God, you came to me in my filthy garments. I didn't chase after you. I didn't go seeking you. You came and found me like a lost sheep. And that's what you do. You go after your people. You go and you claim them. You take their filthy garments. You take our filthy garments upon yourself, stuff that we don't even want to know about. You take upon yourself and you clothe us with your righteousness. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. I pray that you would work in us today and every day to live unto your righteousness now. Help us to be who we are in you. 
I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.